walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. Now, as you know, on News Talk, we've been looking back over the last number of weeks at the 20 most influential moments of the first 20 years of the millennia. Uh, And we are going today to discuss the refugee crisis, the death of three year old Alan Kurdi, a Syrian refugee whose image you may sadly remember, appeared on our TVs and newspapers around the world after he drowned in the Mediterranean in 2015. It sent shockwaves. And Francisca Gilmayer is a freelance journalist based on Lesvos in Greece and she joins us now to discuss all aspects of the refugee crisis. Francisca, thank you for speaking to us this morning. We all remember the terrible images of that little boy lying on the sand face down. Did it make any difference in terms of how we treated refugees and our response, particularly in Europe, to the refugee crisis? Good morning. Yes, I think uh, we always need an iconic picture in order to wake up uh, or to to have uh, to witness a certain moment in history. And that was in 2015 when thousands of asylum seekers began to arrive by sea on the the Greek islands. And... uh, it was also uh, the moment when the European Union's strategic response was the creation of these so-called hotspots. So what we could see was uh, that um, there was suddenly um, an answer required uh, about the death in the Mediterranean, but also in order to uh, to see um, what the next years would bring. And uh, this picture that we've seen in 2015 is still very much um, a daily happening in the Mediterranean now. But simply, I think we just got used to it or we turned away in Europe. Yeah. You are in Greece at the moment. What is the situation uh, on the Greek islands where refugees still do continue to arrive? So uh, three months ago, um, the biggest European camp here on the island was called Moria. It burned down, um, which was um, also a result of the externalization policies, a very foreseeable and dangerous backlash on the human conditions that had been created after 2015, actually, when um, uh, these hot spots got created. So thousands of people got crammed into a space um, which was um, in its whole architecture and evolution, uh, just a layout for the deterrence policies of the EU. So it's kind of a, a colleague called it once, a matchbox catching fire. And what we could see then was that thousands of people lost their homes within hours and uh, were, were then on the streets uh, of, of, of the island. And now a new camp has been built um, for around 7,200 people who live in there now. And it's also a tent-based uh, camp. So we, we approach winter right now. There is still no running water. So the people since the fire didn't have the chance to, uh, to, to shower hot, for example, once or to wash their clothes. Um, at the same time, it's built on the east side, uh, which means that there's constant wind coming in. And we just had a day of full rain um, uh, yesterday and throughout the night. So this morning, everybody woke up in clay and mud. So, um, so, so yeah, it's, is it fair to, stay, to say still appalling conditions? 
Yes, unfortunately it is. Um, and what we can see in this perspective is also that we are moving more forward uh, towards closed detention camps uh, on the Aegean Islands in order to contain refugees and asylum seekers because there's always this narrative of us and them and there's a huge division at the moment also uh, from the islanders and the refugee population on the island and it's very hard for them to get any perspective or schooling for example um or any yeah just just a hint of how okay. how the, uh, how people can progress forwards in europe look thank you for speaking to us this morning that is francisca gilmeyer there who is a freelance journalist based on lesbos in greece and as you can hear despite deaths of many, including that uh, tragic death of Alan Curdy, that little boy that we all saw the images of, um, still an ongoing um, tense and difficult situation for refugees coming to Europe at the moment. It's time now to return to our series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Every day across the station, we're looking back at an influential moment chosen by our listeners. Today, we want to talk about three-year-old Alan Kurdi, a Syrian refugee whose image appeared on TVs and newspapers across the globe after he drowned in the Mediterranean in 2015. That harrowing image made people across the globe sit up and take notice of the horror and the reality of the refugee crisis. We're going to hear now his aunt Tima Kurdi, sister of Abdullah, Alan's father. And this is what she said after the boat capsized in 2015. Content may upset some listeners. He texted me, he said, you're leaving now. And he said, the water was so calm crystal clear and that's what I know is safe to do to do it put the life jacket on them and Alan was so excited so happy for that trip we're gonna have fun daddy and he said where are we going he said to Europe there were 12 of them he was upset with the smuggler he said, I'm paying you the double what the rubber boat will pay for. <laughs> you, you can't put it twelve with us. It's too heavy. <coughs> the small girl said, don't worry about it. We did it 100 times and it's very safe. So when the big wave hit the boat and flip it upside down, so Abdullah right away cat, catch both those boats. He tries so hard from as much as power he can to take them up from the water and, and screams, breathe, breathe, I don't want you to die. And that image is regarded as one of the 100 most influential photographs of all time. It's one that's seared on most of our memories uh, to see that little boy who drowned in the Mediterranean. Well, to talk more about this, I'm joined on the line by Lindsay Hilsom, Channel 4 News International editor and author of a book, In Extremis, The Life of War correspondent Marie Colvin, uh, a woman that I had the pleasure of interviewing several times throughout uh, my broadcasting career. Lindsay, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. Now, let's talk about Alan Kurdi, who he was and where his parents had come from and what they were trying to do, achieve. 
Well, look, he was a little boy. He was、um, Kurdish from Iraq. He was like so many who came across the sea in 2015, and there he was in his red T-shirt and blue shorts and his little shoes. And I think one reason that this photograph really moved your listeners was because he looked like anybody's. Two-year-old, three-year-old boy. He could be yours. He could be mine. He could be any of your, any of your your listeners. And he almost looked like he could be asleep, but of course he wasn't. He was washed up, and he was dead. And he was a total innocent, caught up, you know, literally in the tides of history. It was a tide of history that、uh, that put, that took him to that to that shore and to that photograph. But many people were leaving their countries in that year: Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and above all, Syria. And he was just one of many. And it's interesting that people have called it an influential photograph. I'm not sure it was influential, but it was certainly emblematic.、Um, did it change the attitude of any European countries、uh, towards the crisis? I mean, we know Angela Merkel was、uh, virtually. Uh, alone, I suppose, in her、uh, welcome of、uh, refugees at that time,、um, and got a lot of criticism for her efforts. Well, that's why I said I think it's emblematic, not influential. Because no, it didn't. I mean, the people, the governments had already set their faces against the refugees, as you say, with the notable exception of Angela Merkel. And I think that that's really interesting because I think Angela Merkel. There are two things here. One is that I think that she did what she thought was right, morally right, whatever the political cost. And I think that that comes from her background in in East Germany and so on. But also, I think that she was quite shrewd. And she was looking at things in the long term. Many of those refugees, and I met a lot of them myself because I spent that summer travelling through Europe with refugees. Many of them were young Syrians who had been to university. Some had completed, some hadn't. They were likely to become very good German citizens to contribute to that country's economy and life. And I think that she understood that. And the other countries. Which have turned against them, and they've still turned against them. They will not benefit from this influx of young and potentially well-educated people, because you know we've still got more and more refugees coming, and that's something which Europe just isn't dealing with. At the moment, they're turning up in the Canary Isles. You know that twenty thousand people have shown up in boats、um, onto the Canary Islands in the last year. That's more than. Five times as many as in all of 2018 and 19, because when you stop the route somewhere, then people go elsewhere, and many of these people are from Morocco and West Africa. Now, the the myths that people、uh, will confront you with when you say we should be more welcoming to people who are refugees, they'll say first of all, they're not refugees really; they're economic migrants, and some of them are. You know that's how the world goes round, isn't it? People move partly because sometimes they move because they're pushed out of a place because they're persecuted, and sometimes they move because life is intolerable or impossible. A lot of these Senegalese who are turning up in the Canary Islands at the moment. That is because they were fishermen, but at the moment there are so many EU trawlers and Chinese trawlers taking the fish off the coast of Senegal that they can no longer make a living as fishermen. So that's why they've come to Europe. So we take their fish and send them back. 
I met in Libya three young men who uh, were in a detention center in Misrata. This was, again, back in 2015. One of them, I'd say he was a chancer. He was a Nigerian. He was just trying to get a better life. Another one was a Gambian. He was a very serious young fellow, and he was determined that he was going to get to Europe and you know, he was going to make a living somehow and send money home. And the third was an Eritrean who was fleeing forced conscription. Now, they had different reasons for coming. But again, they were young men. They were like one of my friends when I I did that story. She said to me, you know, they reminded me of my own sons. There's no crime in trying to find a better life. And yet that's one of the arguments. Uh, You know, if these were families in need, it wouldn't be all young men, you know, in their early 20s who are moving. They would be with family units. And then there's the suspicion underneath that maybe this is an infiltration, uh, a fifth column that will rise up Mm. to terrorise Europe. Well, certainly I met many families and we come back to Island Kurdi. I don't think three-year-old Island Kurdi, poor little boy, was a threat to anybody and I don't think his family were either. But yes, there are young men coming across, Pakistanis, Afghans and so on. And I think that it is sometimes difficult for them to integrate. And I think that that is, you know, it's a complicating factor when you get a large influx of young men. But they're certainly not all young men. And it would be a mistake to say that. And of course, one of the ironies is, of course, you know, people are afraid of terrorists coming in. But at that particular moment, when it was the height, Europeans, we were exporting terrorists to Syria and to Iraq, to the Islamic State. Actually, a lot of the terrorists there came from Europe. Where do we go to from here? Because uh, clearly there is a disparity in wealth, even with the the pandemic and so on, or perhaps even the pandemic exacerbates the the disparity in wealth. Uh, And the idea that uh, Europe is the place to go, it's where you can make a living, you can even save money, send it back home. So that's the place to head for. I mean, that would be, you know, if you open the doors, would be Mm. uh, an unstoppable flood, would it not? It absolutely would be. And that disparity in wealth, I think, will be exaggerated uh, by COVID-19 because people, I mean, coming back to the Senegalese fishermen, they're finding it increasingly hard also just because so much has closed, shut down because the economies are, are, are shutting down. So there's there's less demand and so on. So it is extremely, it is extremely difficult. And I don't think that you can just open the gates. Of course you can't. That's unrealistic. But it's also true, you know, remittances from Africans working in the rest of the world, you know, that sends $60 billion a year to Africa, whereas international aid is only $45 billion when I last looked. So, you know, this is a huge and important part of what yeah. makes Africa survive and what makes people stay in Africa is when people are set, when, you know, some family members are sending money home. So certainly what the refugee and migrant agencies say is that there should be more possible ways for people to come to Europe from poorer countries, that there should be legal ways for them to come. There should be ways for them to come and work for a certain number of years and then go back again. Because one of the reasons that you have all this unregulated flows of migrants, and many of that organized by people smugglers who, you know, are working illegally and often very, very rough and very cruel, that is the re- that is one of the main reasons is because there is no legal way. 
Well, remittances, we know all about that in uh, in Ireland because uh, remittances from the United States and uh, from uh, the, the United Kingdom uh, helped put bread on the tables in many households uh, around our country in the bad times. But, uh, Lindsay, thank you very much for joining us. Lindsay Hilsom, Channel 4 News International Editor and author of In Extremis, The Life of War Correspondent, Marie Colvin. Uh, Lindsay, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. And this is Claire McKenna in for Andrea Gilligan this afternoon. You can text 53106 at a cost of 30 cent or email lunchtime live at newstalk.com. Now we're continuing with News Talk's reflection of the 20 most influential moments of the last 20 years. And today we'll be looking at the refugee crisis. Graeme Clifford, a former feature writer and broadcast journalist and now founder of the Sanctuary Runners Movement, travelled to Hungary, Austria and Germany in the autumn of 2015 to see for himself the unfolding migrant crisis as hundreds of thousands of refugees fled to Europe, predominantly from Syria and Iraq. Graham joins me on the line here on News Talk. Hello, Graham. Hi, good afternoon, Claire. So, Graham, when you look back, what do you remember about that journey? Oh, it's it's quite surreal, you know, um, even taking the time now to think back. Um, I suppose we all know what we were seeing on our TV screens at the time, and it was very hard to digest this mass exodus of people, the biggest movement of people on the continent since World War II. Um, And I decided that I wanted to go over and write and report and and put radio reports together on what was happening. Um, And um, then the week before I went, um, it was that awful morning when we woke up and we saw on on our newspapers and so on the pictures of three-year-old Alan Curdy, who died with his mother and older brother, uh, crossing the Aegean um, and his body of course was washed up on the beach and those pictures went everywhere and it was, it was very emotive and it was awfully sad. I have a three-year-old downstairs watching telly now because I'm talking to you Claire and you know when I was looking at those pictures again uh, you know it, it, it's it's horrendous. So anyway I, I decided to go over initially to Turkey, uh, initially rather I should say to Hungary to Tompa Road but the majority of my time was spent in Vienna and Munich and back and forth there um, speaking with refugees, talking to them about their journey and um, just trying to encapsulate, I suppose, what they were going through. And you witnessed tragedy, but you also witnessed some great acts of kindness. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, it was such a, I mean, it still is fairly messed up for me on a human level, what you see and, 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 and migration in general, because it's not black and white. It's so, it's, uh, there's a million shades of grey. And um, when you see something positive, it really sticks out. So there was a few things in Vienna in particular. I remember one morning going down to the train station just after a train had arrived in from Hungary and people were getting off and they were disheveled and they were exhausted and there was families. And there was this young little Austrian boy blowing bubbles, I remember, from, you know, just one of those normal bubble little things. And all the uh, loads of Syrian and uh, and Iraqi kids gathered around. So the language barrier wasn't there. It was just a moment of of, uh, humanity. And then I met some Irish guys in uh, Vienna who were running a bar, an Irish bar in the city, a guy called David O'Connor from NACE and John Milner from Bantry. And they decided with other Irish people in the city and, and English people as well, I remember, to start gathering stuff that maybe people would need stuff like toothbrushes or sanitary products or deodorants or a change of 
clothes or something. And they started gathering stuff and asking people to come to their bar and give them stuff. And by the time I got there, there was like rooms just packed up to the ceiling with boxes and boxes of things. And every time a train would come into the train station, they'd rush down and they'd give out the, uh, the things I'd collected. So, I mean, that was, that, was, that was a lovely act of humanity in a situation that was truly bonkers, really. Yeah, but then, of course, there was the, the tragedy. And I've read back through some of your reports and you mentioned the silence that when people arrive and they've arrived to safety, but it's there's no elation, there's no high fives, there's nothing to celebrate. They've still had to leave their homes. And I think that's something that people often underestimate. And you, you hear it discussed sometimes with things like direct provision or asylum seekers. Sure, isn't it great that they, they are getting somewhere safe but no they're they're leaving their homes they're being separated from their families it's 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 not a positive thing for them oh god no i i mean i i think that's the great misconception you know um if i take syrian uh refugees in particular they they reminded me very much of irish people so well educated um um good jobs and family family very important beautiful country scenically um uh, aspirations, you know, well-traveled, um, and suddenly because of what was going on in their country, their, their houses, their towns, their streets were being blown to smithereens, and there was no option but to leave. I remember, Claire, at one point we were crossing, I guess, the Alps, is it, between, um, uh, between Munich and Vienna, just on by train, and um, I looked out and there's this amazing picture postcard scene, you know. It was coming to the winter, uh, there was some snow, it was beautiful. And I remember turning to um, people I was with who were Syrian and saying, isn't that beautiful? And they looked at us and they said, yeah, I, I guess, you know, but uh, our country's beautiful too. So there was no kind of, there was no sense of liberation or, you know, celebration. Yeah. Um, I, I, when you get to the end point, what I really notice is this kind of outpouring of relief, perhaps is the best way to describe it. But it's just wrapped in sadness. I mean, it's a ridiculous, yeah. uh, it's a ridiculous situation that shouldn't be happening. Um, and these people are, are, are paying the price for it. You know, 25% of the uh, refugees in 2015 that would have come into Europe were under 18 years old. So there's so many children witnessing things they shouldn't have been witnessing, Never. going through things they shouldn't have been going through. Now, I'm sorry, Graham. I'm very short on time. We, are, we have to move on to the, the next item. But I want to ask you if you can answer it in two or three words. Do you think history will look back favourably on how Ireland handled the refugee crisis? Um, I think it was very difficult. I think it was a European problem more so than, than one particular country. But undoubtedly, we could have done more, I think, in terms of the numbers of people that we, we took. I think we've made good strides. There's a, a definitely a will to help there from successive governments. But um, I think it's all about acting quicker and, and, and uh, trying to do even more to encourage communities to get involved. Graham Clifford, former feature writer and broadcast journalist and now founder of the Sanctuary Runners Movement. Thank you very much for coming on. Time now to look again at some of the most influential issues of the last 20 years. And today, it's the refugee crisis. James Gannon is a volunteer with Refugee Support in Balhaudrin, a group that helps the refugee centre in the town there. And James joins us now on News Talk. Afternoon, James. Afternoon, Sean. How are you? Not too bad. Now, now uh, explain to us why the refugees come to you. Is it for, it's not for direct provision. Is it almost like preparing them for life in Ireland? Yeah, I suppose following on from the war and continuous war in, in Syria, 
Um, there was millions of refugees come out of the place after, and lots of them, lots of people were killed. Um, and Ireland got along with, with, with the UN, the United Nations, and they, they uh, decided they would take some 4,000 refugees into Ireland. And rather than them going through the, the, the system of, of um, direct provision and through an asylum system, they're uh, kind of processed, I suppose, which is a horrible word. Is the word is, is, they're processed in maybe whatever country they're in, in refugee camps, could be in Jordan or in um, Greece or in Lebanon. Mm. And then they come into Ireland through a refugee programme. Uh, and so when they get to Balahadrine, what happens to them then? Well, in Balahadrine, then they come, to, they, they, um, they come to the hotel here, what was the hotel, the Abbey Field Hotel, it's the Iraq Centre now, which is the Emergency Reception Orientation Centre. And they're the kind of, they spent a few months, the plan is to spend a few months in Balahadrine and in the centre, and they learn, get some basic English classes there. There's a school operating out of it. Um, they kind of learn the basic things of how to do things in Ireland, like, you know, like, I mean, uh, go to the post office, go to the shops, mm. um, which they would normally have done in Syria anyway, but just to get used to the systems that are used in Ireland, um, opening a bank account, um, all that kind of stuff that's around the everyday life that we consider everyday life in Ireland. But for other people, then there's a lot of bureaucracy involved in it that they wouldn't be used to. Yeah, and and I suppose they come from a whole range of different backgrounds. Some would have been very well off, and some were paupers. Well, yeah, I suppose that Syria, I guess, was a pretty much a country like like any other Western country. I suppose it's one of the most Westernized uh, countries of the Middle East at the time before the war. And like, I mean, people got on with their own daily business. They done their jobs. They went to the shop. They went to school. They went to church. They went to the to uh, the mosque, um, they just got on with things. Mm. Albeit the fact that they were still under the the watchful eye of the security forces, and you dared say anything too wrong against Assad or his family, kind of thing. But they got on with it, do you know. Yeah. Why is it? Uh, uh, do you think in, in many towns react didn't react that well when when they heard that refugees were coming? Uh, now, as I understand it, Balhadrin, like many towns, wasn't consulted that much about what was going to happen. But ye rallied round as a community uh, almost immediately and decided to help them rather than object to them. But I suppose, Sean, really, it's not just Balhadrine. It's, it's, it's Irish people in general. Like, I mean, there were a few towns, really, that kind of kicked up a bit of a rumpus. And I'm not sure the rumpus was against the refugees all of the time either, mm. you know, or the asylum seekers. Irish people are inherently welcoming. That's what we do, you know. Um, we've been welcomed across the world in so many different countries for years and years and maybe not welcomed either in some places as well. But um, Balladrine is, 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 is it's, I suppose it's like a lot of small towns in Ireland. It has been decimated through the 80s and the, 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 the most recent, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger and all that. Um, and I suppose people were looking for something kind of kind of to, 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 to re-liven up the town kind of thing. And this kind of came and it has done, like, you know, it has kind of put a new life into the town. Yeah, and particularly for kids, as I understand it, you know, your focus is on uh, on getting some of these kids involved in sport. Well, they're, they're, they're like ourselves, they're, they're mad into sports. Any of children are, and, mm. the, and the young people. So it's not just sports. Like, I mean, we do, we, we, there's lots of things going on. Um, we have, um, we get involved with the with the football and the local GA and the boxing club in Lachlan and all that kind of stuff. Um, local man here, Declan Regan, with the community games has done Trojan work with that, and they've won various awards, both locally and nationally. But it's 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 um, it's all the other stuff. Like I mean, the ladies' knitting groups. There's um, Sligo Travellers Network football games that we go to regularly. Um, 
everything's going on. Like, it's just a normal, normal run-of-the-mill daily thing. Now, of course, COVID has slowed everything down. And of course. Put a halt to lots of stuff. Yeah. But we get over that too. Yeah. And so how often would they tend, or does it vary how long they'll, they'll stay in your community? I guess the, the, the first group case stayed quite a long. Most of them were, were single men who had been through some horrific, horrific experiences in Syria and in trying to get out of Syria. Um, and more recently then, there are younger families that are coming, kind of with teenage kids and younger, kind of uh, primary school age kids. Mm. So they generally stay maybe three to four months around the area of the town and then they move on to different parts around the country to different locations right, for their okay. forever homes. Oh, God, so you're kind of like midwives, uh, in a way, you're seeing an awful <laughs> lot of people uh, coming I through. would never have thought about it that way. I'd trust you to come up with that one, Mike. <laughs> James, thanks a million for talking with us today and uh, keep up the good work. That's uh, James Gallen there. He's a volunteer coordinator in Balhedri. Now, for one of the 20 most influential moments of the last 20 years, as voted by you, the News Talk listeners, the refugee crisis came out quite near the top. This crisis, of course, came to a head in 2015 when three-year-old Alan Kurdi, a Syrian refugee, appeared on TVs and newspapers around the world after he drowned in the Mediterranean. Uh, Take a listen to Alan's father, Abdullah, talking about what he did that day. We went into the sea for four minutes and then the captain saw the waves are so high so he steered the boat and we were hit immediately he panicked and dived into the sea and fled i took over and started steering the waves were so high and the boat flipped i took my wife and my kids in my arms and i realized they were all dead yeah, Abdullah Kurdi there, Alan Kurdi's father, speaking about uh, that day, a day, I suppose, that, that shocked the world, certainly the images of Alan Kurdi lying on that beach. Aon O'Reardon is a Labour TD for Dublin Bay North. He's a former Minister of State with special responsibility for equality, new communities and culture and was in office at the time. Uh, Aon, thanks a million for joining us. Uh, I'm sure you, like everyone else, as I said, shocked when those images emerged. Yeah, and it was at a time, if you remember, in 2015, where a lot of conversation was happening around direct provision and a number of of other issues were happening. And and when that image emerged, there was a conversation happening within government as to how many program refugees from Syria that that the Irish state should take. And the number of 600 was was being tossed around. And I remember a number of, of Fine Gael ministers of state and backbenchers defending that number of 600. Uh, but once once that image emerged, it was actually um, it was it was the public reaction to, to it mm. uh, was quite strong, and then the pressure from the public on the Irish state became quite strong, and then it was made easier for those of us who weren't comfortable with that number uh, to argue for a, for a higher number. I would say one thing though. We used to go to sort of you know European level meetings with with other ministers of justice or ministers of state in this portfolio, and we'd often discuss the fact that within various different parliaments across Europe, there was a a very high level of anti-immigrant sentiment or, or xenophobic sentiment, and they used to talk amongst themselves as to as to how to counter that, but that wasn't the case in our Iraq. This, in fairness to the Irish political system. 
all of the pressure that was coming on the government that I was a member of was to do more, was to be more compassionate, was to be more humanitarian. And I think we're possibly unique in that respect across Europe. And that's something I think we should be proud of and, and to hold on to. Uh, is that fair to the Germans? I mean, the reaction of Angela Merkel certainly yeah, yeah, in I this think crisis so. Sorry, is yeah. remarkable. Yeah, but I, I, I think there are voices within the German parliament who would be very critical of that. Um, but okay. from where I from where I was, you know, fronting up for the government or, or fronting up for the minister, there was never ever a voice on the opposition bench benches who was, you know, suggesting that we do less or suggesting that the that, that, uh, the, the the state should be blind to what was going on. And then the conversation moved very quickly from a position of six hundred to a position of one thousand two hundred to the eventual position of four thousand, which we took in over two years. And I, I, I look. Of course, you're proud of that. Anyone would be proud to be involved in in, in that level of growth. You know, from six hundred to four thousand. Uh, do you feel though that we could have gone further? There are plenty of people who'd be critical of that. You know, that we we could have done an awful lot more. I I think we should have done it when we didn't need a, a photograph of a child on a beach. Um, it can be hard to make make the argument when there isn't a visual. It's just statistics and. We were also making the argument for direct provision. We were also making the argument for undocumented workers in in Ireland, the 26,000 of those. And we were working with the department, which was unsympathetic. I'll be frank about that, the Department of Justice, extremely unsympathetic to the plight of any asylum seeker in Ireland. Uh, the, the phrase pull factor was used all the time whenever you were trying to make their conditions better. Explain that to me, that that it would be an attraction for people. Is that it? Yeah, you just, basically you just get more. And I've been advocating since I left uh, that position that the whole area of, integ- of of integration and immigration should be taken out of the Department of Justice, and that has now finally happened. And I'm 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 really really thankful uh, that Roderick O'Gorman, for example, is, is a minister in charge of a new department which has this under his his remit that whole area of asylum and direct provision because the Department of Justice is a security department. It does law and order. It does guards and prisons. Mm. It does legislation. Uh, 40% of legislation that comes through the House comes through the Ministry of Justice. It's a serious department, which has still has bulletproof windows from the 70s and the troubles. It takes itself very seriously. It doesn't have the mindset to deal with an issue like that f- from a humanitarian mindset. And I, I found that incredibly difficult uh, to work within that department. And I have to say, uh, you know, I, I had my differences with the with the senior minister at the time as well. Um, but it was, the, it, it, well, I suppose, what, what gave, gave us great sense of pride in a way was that the reaction from the Irish public, at the same time, by the way, this was at the teeth of the, of the water charges. There was a huge yeah. amount of, of, of upset in the, in the public about loss of jobs and loss of earnings and increased taxation and, and emigration. They still found it within themselves to say, no, we need to do more. Uh, now, there's been a shift since then. We didn't have protests outside direct provision centres. Um, something yeah. happened in the Irish public in the years since then. Um, I, I can't put my finger on why that what that reason is, it's, but at it, that point in time, it was it, it was something that I think we could have all have been collectively proud of. Uh, Lin, Lindsay Hilson was on uh, from Channel Four with Pat Kenny a little bit earlier, and she was interesting about Alan Curdy in this photograph. She described it as emblematic but not influential, and her point was that it, it had a short term influence, like what you're talking about, but really long term. Could you point at at that moment and say it it changed attitudes across Europe? you know, long-term to the refugee crisis and to what was happening in the Mediterranean and her assessment 
unfortunately, was that it really didn't. Would you agree or disagree? Um, I suppose it did. It did have a short term effect, but it did. It did touch on something within the Irish psyche that maybe was already there. Uh, was bubbling under the surface, but then gave a chance to articulate itself. I I do remember vividly talking to Alan Kelly about it, and he was making the point that Simon Coveney was very, very strong on at a cabinet level. And I think, to be honest, both those men had infant children at that time. I was, you know what, I was going to ask you that, and I don't want to sound trite yeah. about it, but like you, you have a young child now, I've got young children, and uh, whenever a story like this appears, you just, I, I, I don't know what it is, and I don't want to be dismissive of people's opinions who yeah. don't, because they're perfectly entitled to any take they want on any item, but you can't help but see the face of your own child yeah. when something like that happens. I, I think that did have an influence, and I, I don't want to suggest that people who don't have children don't no. you know, wouldn't be horrified by that, but you do look at your own child. Uh, and I know that Simon Coveney and Alan Kelly simultaneously had, had children uh, the same age bracket uh, at the time of the photograph. And that would touch them in a different way. And the ordinary party political sort of, you know, program for government stuff will be put to one side when you see an image like that. Uh, and, you know, parenthood has changed me as well. Uh, and I think anybody who goes through it or anybody goes through a situation in their own family, be it an illness or a bereavement, certainly will view things a different way. But it did it did have an impact that the two people, one mm. one from the environment portfolio, which which is obviously in respect of housing, and from the from the foreign affairs por- portfolio that Simon Coveney had at the time, and still does obviously, uh, it it did have an impact. But yeah. long term, uh, long term, since then, we've had the rise of the right. We've had Brexit, yeah, which was a, a, a lot of it was anti-immigrant sentiment. We've had Trump, which was a lot of that was anti-immigrant sentiment, and and of course across Europe, it, it has risen again. So maybe it allowed those who were always feeling that way to be more confident in speaking out. Yeah, um, but I, I think across Europe, the economic collapse uh, that that then was coupled with a migrant crisis led to the rise of the of the far right, right and we're well, still dealing with that. Aon, we appreciate your time today. Aon O'Reardon, Labour TD for Dublin Bay North. Uh, tomorrow we're going to continue our series exploring uh, News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past uh, two decades as voted on by you, the News Talk listener. And we're going to be talking about the Queen's visit, Queen Elizabeth II, her visit to Ireland in 2011. And I'm delighted to say that former President of Ireland, Mary McAleese, will be my guest here on The Hard Show. Mm-hmm. 